Chapter 8 of English Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine Phipps. English Literature by Geraldine Hodgson. The Drama. A drama or play may be written in prose or poetry. It may handle the grave or the funny side of life, or the two intermingled. In its beginning, so far back as men have traced, the drama was connected with religion. This was the case in England too. Our plays probably began late in the 11th century, their main purpose, like that of the cathedral sculptors, discussed in an earlier chapter, was to teach the great truths of the Christian religion to that multitudinous populace who had no books, and could not read them in any case. In the writing schools of the monasteries, manuscripts, whether for the use of the church or of learning, were laboriously copied manually by the monks. Obviously, the circulation of books was therefore limited. The miracle plays of the 13th century are believed to have developed out of liturgical tropes, French in origin. These, at first, were an embellishment or elaboration of certain parts of the mass, of the introit, the processional psalm before it, of the gradual or grail, before the Gospel, of the Kyrie, of the Gloria. By the middle of the 10th century, these tropes were numerous, not only in France, but in England and Italy, and less frequently in Germany. By the 13th century, they were falling into disuse, save that tropes to the Kyrie lasted in France to the 16th century. Their connection with the drama arose out of their use at Christmas and Easter, when, leaving their original purpose, they grew into dramatic scenes, acted by priests in the course of the Mass. From this use, the step to religious drama out of the Mass, for purposes of teaching, was a short and obvious one. The calendar of the Church, with its perpetual greater and smaller festivals, provided plenty of occasions and subjects. The great feasts, Christmas, Easter, Ascension Tide, Whitsuntide and Corpus Christi sufficed as days when the foundation truths of Christianity should be placed dramatically before those who could not read. Thus, they saw and heard the story of the Incarnation, of the Passion, Resurrection and Ascension, of the Feasts of the Holy Spirit, and of the Blessed Sacrament. On the lesser festivals, they saw acted and listened to the stories of the deeds and sufferings of their brethren, the great saints, doctors, martyrs, confessors of the days before their own. Besides all this, the human, most vivid and picturesque stories of Old Testament times afforded abundant material for teaching religion and right conduct. At first, these plays were acted by the clergy. Later, in the 13th and 14th centuries, the ordinary townspeople and workmen banded themselves together in guilds and acted themselves. The plays were given occasionally on stationary stages, generally on large carts, carrying a two-storied stage which could travel about the country. Naturally, these people mixed up their own ideas, French, Italian, English, with the scenes, thoughts and actions of the people of Palestine, whether before or after our Lord's time. When Shakespeare made his mob in Coriolanus, or Julius Caesar, or the Athenian workmen in a Midsummer Night's Dream, just the English working people whom he knew so well. He was only following the customs of these early miracle plays, and of the mysteries, as they were called, 
of the 15th century. These plays developed earlier in France than in England, as we have found none earlier than 1066, it is very possible that we borrowed the idea from the Norman French, who settled down among us and said they had conquered us. In England, the religious plays of the 12th to the 14th centuries seem to have been called miracle plays. A very early one, on the life of St. Catherine of Alexandria, was performed at Dunstable at the beginning of the 12th century. Four different sets of miracle plays have come down to us, the Townley, the Chester, the Coventry and the York. Of the first set, only one manuscript has been found, belonging to the Townley family. These were performed at Wakefield. There are 30 of them. At York, the pageant plays, for the representation of the York plays, of which there were 48, was on the site of the present Great Northern Railway Station. Next in number comes the Coventry set, with 42 plays, while Chester had 24. Most of these plays were given on the unwieldy-looking house carts, carrying a platform on wheels, which bore a two-storied stage. Some of them were played as a kind of monopoly by definite sets of craftsmen, like the Three Kings of Cologne, which was in the hands of the plumbers, glaziers and goldsmiths of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. These craft guilds competed keenly over the production of good dramatic work, as many guilds did in the work of cathedral building and adornment. For instance, the glorious painted windows in the cathedrals of Bourges, Chartres and Le Mans are, severally, gifts of a number of trade or craft guilds, among them being furriers, weavers, drapers, builders, tanners, etc. In York Minster, one of the nave aisle windows is believed to have been given by a guild of bell founders. These four cathedrals, five if we add Canterbury, possess the finest medieval glass in the world. We, in this later age, may wisely reflect on the happier conditions of the Middle Ages when the tradespeople and craftsmen gave their gifts and their energy to the great arts of drama and glass painting. Looking on at cinema shows and league matches seems but a dull substitute. Our earliest English miracle play, The Harrowing of Hell, is one of the Townley set. Its subject is the tradition of our Lord's descent into hell to rescue those souls who belong to him. The personages of this drama are our Lord, Adam and Eve, the old prophets Moses and Isaiah, the last of the prophets, St. John Baptist, King David and St. Simeon, with ribald Beelzebub and Satan. In a conversation between Jesus Christ and Satan, the latter was unaware that our Lord was incarnate God. At last, our Lord revealed this secret. Thou wicked fiend, let be thy noise. My father dwells in heaven on high, in bliss that never more shall cease. I am his only son, his foreword to fulfill. Together will we dwell or asunder when we will. Satan's utter surprise and immediate realisation that he can no longer make any defence, is expressed in four lines of quaint simplicity. God's son? Nay, then mightest thou be glad, because no chattels needest thou crave, but thou hast lived always like a lad, in sorrow and as a simple knave. In a play from the Chester set called Abraham, Melchizedek and Isaac, God the Father appeared as one of the characters, promising Abraham a son. The later dialogue between Abraham and Isaac 
as they travel together to the hill of sacrifice, is most humanly real and pathetic. Again and again, as Isaac asks who is the victim, or, having learned, begs for mercy, Abraham cries, Oh, my heart will break in three. The harrowing of hell was an Easter play. The Townley, or Wakefield, Shepherd's play, and the Coventry Nativity play, of course, belonged to the Christmas festival. The opening speech of the first shepherd in the shepherd's play sounds more like the life on English downs and wolds than in Bethlehem's fields. Lord, what? These weathers are cold and I am ill-happed. I am near-hand numb, so long have I napped. My legs bend and fold, my fingers are chapped. It is not as I would, for I am all lapped in sorrow, in storms and tempest. Now in the east, now in the west, woe is him has never rest, midday nor morrow. In the Coventry Nativity play, the shepherds, warned by the star, started for the crib, and altogether they said, Brother, look up, and behold, what thing is yonder that shineth so bright? As long as ever I have watched my fold, yet never saw I such a sight in field. And then, as they actually approached the crib, they sang this merry little Christian song. As I rode out this and dearest night, of the three jolly shepherds I saw a sight, and all about their fold a star shone bright. They say, Turly, Turlo, so merrily the shepherds their pipes can blow. Later on, the three kings, Sir Jasper, king of Taurus, Sir Baltazar, king of Araby, and Sir Melchior, king of Aganara, appeared, having at last seen the star for which they had so long watched. The third king prayed as they rode. I ride wandering in ways wide, over mountains and vales, I wot not where I am. Now king of all kings, send me such guide, that I may have knowledge of this country's name. At last the kings found the crib, and kneeling, with their gifts, in turn address the holy child. Jasper. Hail, Lord, that all this world hath wrought. Hail, God and man together in fear. For thou hast made all things of naught, albeit that thou liest poorly here. A cup full of gold here I have thee brought, in tokening thou art without peer. Balthazar. Hail be thou, Lord of high magnificence, in tokening of priesthood and dignity of office, to thee I offer a cup full of incense, for it behoveth thee to have such sacrifice. Melchior, hail be thou, Lord long looked for, I have brought thee myrrh for mortality, in tokening thou shalt mankind restore to life by the death upon the tree. Neither human life nor literature stand still. As generations passed, our national plays changed, developed. After a while, historical persons were replaced by personified virtues and vices, such as constancy, good deeds, jealousy, avarice, courage, gluttony, and so forth. The devil was retained in these morality plays, and the essential comic side of things was provided for by the invention of a character called the vice, whose special role it was to annoy the devil. 
Long after, Shakespeare referred to this clown-like individual in Twelfth Night, when Fest, as Sir Topas, sang as he left Malvolio's prison. I am gone, sir, and anon, sir, I'll be with you again in a trice, like to the old vice your need to sustain, who with dagger of lath in his rage and his wrath cries, aha, to the devil, like a mad lad. Pair thy nails, dad, adieu, goodman devil. Among other vexatious tricks, the vice was accustomed to try to pair the devil's claws with his wooden dagger. The next dramatic change was easy. It was merely the substitution of men and women for these one-sided characters representing a single vice or virtue. Yet these changes were spread over many generations, and the first English comedy, furnished with everyday men and women, was written by the headmaster of Eton College, Dr. Nicholas Udall, about 1550. It was called Ralph Royster Doister. Within ten years, it was followed by the first English tragedy, Gorbaduck, the joint production of Thomas Sackville, Lord Buckhurst, and Thomas Norton, which Sir Philip Sidney described as full of stately speeches and well-sounding phrases, and as full of notable morality, which it doth most delightfully teach. Out of the work of these many years, the Elizabethan drama grew. The four great plays of Kit Marlowe, Tamburlaine, Dr. Faustus, Edward II, The Jew of Malta, written between 1587 and 1593. All the supreme tragedies, comedies and histories of Shakespeare, the mighty tragic dramas of Webster, the plays of Ben Jonson, Beaumont and Fletcher, and others. It is thought that Marlowe may have worked with Shakespeare notably in Henry VI, but his fame rests upon his own four plays and upon his lovely lyric, Hero and Leander. Marlowe's plays are not quite so easy to come by as Shakespeare's, so it is worth while to quote two speeches from these, our earliest Elizabethan tragedies. The first comes from Dr. Faustus, the scholar who, having sold his soul to the devil for the price of twenty-four years of life, in which his every desire was satisfied, has come to eleven o'clock on the last night of the twenty-fourth year. Ah, Faustus, now hast thou but one bare hour to live, and then thou must be damned perpetually. Stand still, you ever-moving spheres of heaven, that time may cease and midnight never come. Fair nature's eye, rise, rise again, and make perpetual day, or let this hour be but a year, a month, a week, a natural day, that Faustus may repent and save his soul. Oh, I'll leap up to my God, who pulls me down. See, see where Christ's blood streams in the firmament. One drop would save my soul, half a drop. Ah, my Christ, ah, rend not my heart for naming of my Christ, yet I will call on him. Mountain and hills, come, come and fall on me, and hide me from the heavy wrath of God. Ah, half the hour is past, twill all be past anon. Oh, God, if thou wilt not have mercy on my soul, yet for Christ's sake, whose blood hath ransomed me, impose some end on my incessant pain. Let Faustus live in hell a thousand years, a hundred thousand, and at last be saved. The clock strikes twelve. Oh, it strikes, it strikes! Now, body, turn to air, or Lucifer will bear thee quick to hell. O soul, be changed to little water drops and fall into the ocean, ne'er be found. My God, my God, look not so fierce on me. 
Adders and serpents, let me breathe a while. Ugly hell gape not. Come not, Lucifer. I'll burn my books. Ah, Mephistopheles. The other passage is from Edward II's speech, uttered just before he was done to death by his wife's command in Berkeley Castle, whence his body was carried for burial to Gloucester Cathedral. There, on his tomb today, men may see his effigy portraying a handsome man of kingly enough bearing, whatever his faults and shortcomings as a ruler may actually have been. This dungeon where they keep me is the sink, wherein the filth of all the castle falls, and there in mire and puddle have I stood this ten days' space, and less that I should sleep. One plays continually upon a drum. They give me bread and water, being a king, so that for want of sleep and sustenance my mind's distempered and my body numbed, and whether I have limbs or no I know not. Oh, would my blood dropped out from every vein, as doth the water from my tattered robes. Tell Isabel the queen I looked not thus, when for her sake I ran at tilt in France, and there unhorsed the Duke of Clermont. It is impossible in a book like this to say anything adequate about Shakespeare as a dramatist, but perhaps two instances of the use he made for his plays of chronicles and other written history may be interesting. Moreover, it has a very important aspect, which is sometimes forgotten. Some years before Shakespeare had written any of his historical plays, Sir Philip Sidney, in his Apology for Poetry, 1580 to 1581, had shown, as clearly perhaps as anyone can, the use which a dramatic poet can make of the philosopher's facts, thoughts and dreams, and of the historian's account of the past. Sidney, looking with his mind's eye at the philosopher, coming towards me with a sullen gravity, and at the historian, laden with old mouse-eaten records, declares that the former tries to succeed in teaching by precept, and the second by example. But, as Sidney realised, each only deals with half of the matter, while what men need, if they are to learn to care, and then to act, is first to know how things should be done, which is the philosopher's business, and then to discover how they have been actually done, which is the historian's share. Who is to present these two parts at once? Sir Philip Sidney had no doubt on the point. Now doth the peerless poet perform both, for whatsoever the philosopher saith should be done, he giveth a perfect picture of it in someone by whom he supposeth it was done. Two dissimilar instances of Shakespeare's method must suffice. Not improbably, some readers of Richard II have wondered why the king, hearing that his former servants, Bushy and Green, have gone over to the usurper, Bolingbroke, should have exclaimed so bitterly, O oh, villains, vipers, damned without redemption, dogs, easily one to fawn on any man, since as a rule, our pet animals are so singularly faithful and understanding. The explanation may be found in this passage from Froissart, the chronicler. As it was informed me, King Richard had a greyhound called Math, who always waited upon the king, and would know no man else. For whensoever the king did ride, he that kept the greyhound did let him loose, and he would straight run to the king, and fawn upon him, and leap with his forefeet upon the king's shoulders. And as the king and the earl of Derby talked together in the court, the greyhound, who was wont to leap upon the king, left the king, 
and came to the Earl of Derby, Duke of Lancaster, and made to him the same friendly countenance and cheer as he was wont to do to the king. The duke, who knew not the greyhound, demanded of the king what the greyhound would do. Cousin, quoth the king, it is a great good token to you and an evil sign to me. Sir, how know you that? quoth the duke. I know it well, quoth the king. The greyhound maketh you cheer this day as king of England, as you shall be, and I shall be deposed. The greyhound hath this knowledge naturally. Therefore, take him to you. He will follow you and forsake me. The duke understood well those words, and cherished the greyhound, who would never after follow King Richard, but followed the Duke of Lancaster. So can the dramatic poet weave poignant tragedy out of philosophy and the chronicler's half-gossiping tale. In some of the historical plays, Shakespeare's main authority is the chronicle of Raphael Hollinshead, circa 1580. Not a little can be learned of his method of handling his materials by comparing the historian's account of Henry V's delay in starting for France with the great scene in Henry V. The following passage is all which Shakespeare had before him. When King Henry had fully furnished his navy with men, munition, and other provisions, he, perceiving that his captains misliked nothing so much as delay, determined his soldiers to go a shipboard and away. But see the hap. The night before the day appointed for their departure, he was credibly informed that Richard, Earl of Cambridge, brother to Edward, Duke of York, and Henry, Lord Scroop of Masham, Lord Treasurer, with Thomas Gray, a knight of Northumberland, being confederate together, had conspired his death, wherefore he caused them to be apprehended. The said Lord Scroop was in such favour with the king that he admitted him sometime to be his bedfellow, in whose fidelity the king reposed such trust that when any private or public council was in hand, this lord had much in the determination of it, for he represented so great gravity in his countenance, such modesty in behaviour, and such virtuous zeal to all godliness in his talk, that whatever he said was thought for the most part necessary to be done and followed. Also, the said Sir Thomas Gray, as some write, was of the king's privy council, diverse right that Richard, Earl of Cambridge, did not conspire with the Lord Scroop and Thomas Gray for the murdering of King Henry, to please the French king withal, but only with the intent to exalt to the crown his brother-in-law Edmund, Earl of March, as heir to Lionel, Duke of Clarence, after the death of which Earl of March, the Earl of Cambridge was sure that the crown should come to him by his wife and to his children of her begotten. And therefore, as was thought, he rather confessed himself for need of money to be corrupted by the French king than he would declare his inward mind and open his very intent and inward purpose, which, if it were espied, he saw plainly that the Earl of March should have tasted of the same cup as he had drunken, and what should have come to his own children he much doubted. Therefore, destitute of comfort and in despair to save his children, he feigned that tale, desiring rather to save his succession than himself, which he did indeed, for his son Richard, Duke of York, not privily but openly claimed the crown, and Edward, his son, both claimed it and gained it, as after it shall appear. These prisoners, upon their examination, confessed that for a great sum of money which they had received of the French king, they intended verily either to have delivered the king alive into the hands of his enemies, 
or else to have murdered him before he should arrive in the Duchy of Normandy. When King Henry had heard all things opened, which he desired to know, he caused all his nobility to come before his presence, before whom he caused to be brought the offenders also, and to them said, Having thus conspired the death and destruction of me, which am the head of the realm and the governor of the people, it may be, no doubt, that you likewise have sworn the confusion of all that are here with me, and also the desolation of your own country. To what horror, O Lord, for any true English heart to consider that such an execrable iniquity should ever be wrap you, as for pleasing of a foreign enemy to imbrue your hands in your blood, and to ruin your own native soil. Revenge here in touching my person, though I seek not, yet for the safeguard of you, my dear friends, and for due preservation of all sorts, I am by office to cause example to be showed. Get ye hence, therefore, ye poor miserable wretches, to the receiving of your just reward, wherein God's majesty give you grace of his mercy and repentance of your heinous offences. And so, immediately, they were had to execution. It is easy to see how Shakespeare sometimes closely follows, and sometimes entirely departs from this characteristic 16th century plain description of facts. It should be read with the scene in Henry V. His chief departure from his original is in making the conspirator's offence a personal rather than a political one. He opens the scene with a conversation, not hinted at by Hollinshead, between Exeter, Bedford and Westmoreland. They all dwell on the personal treachery of the action. There is nowhere any suggestion resembling Hollinshead's that the conspiracy was aimed at the kingdom as well as at the king. Again, Henry's skilful method of making the traitors judge themselves, a device not in Hollinshead's story, shows Shakespeare's insight into human character. He follows the chronicler most closely in dwelling on the sheer treachery, the abominable betrayal, the kind of deed which no decent Englishman or woman, of any time or class, is ever inclined to condone. It is as if he wished to hold up to everlasting ignominy, as Dante had done before him, the misery and sin of skulking in the dark, of not daring to come out into the open, of stabbing your friend in the back. So he seizes on Hollinshead's second paragraph, and out of it weaves the greatest apostrophe of condemnation to a traitor which perhaps exists in our language. That it is to be the core of his case, he shows from the outset in Exeter's speech. Nay, but the man that was his bedfellow, whom he hath dulled and cloyed with gracious favours, that he should, for a foreign purse, so sell his sovereign's life to death and treachery. After Henry's adroit extraction of their guilt from their own lips, he deals with this dark sin of treachery. But, oh, what shall I say to thee, Lord Scroop? Thou cruel, ingrateful, savage, and inhuman creature, thou that didst bear the key of all my counsels, that noosed the very bottom of my soul, that almost mightest have coined me into gold, wouldst thou have practised on me for thy use, may it be possible? that foreign hire could out of thee extract one spark of evil that might annoy my finger? Tis so strange that, though the truth of it stands off as gross as black and white, my eye will scarcely see it. Treason and murder ever kept together, 
as two yoke devils sworn to either's purpose, working so grossly in a natural cause that admiration did not hoop at them. But thou, gainst all proportion, didst bring in wonder to wait on treason and on murder, and whatsoever canning fiend it was that wrought upon thee so preposterously hath got the voice in hell for excellence. All other devils that suggest by treasons do botch and bungle up damnation with patches, colours, and with forms being fetched from glistering semblances of piety. But he that tempered thee bade thee stand up, gave thee no instance why thou shouldst do treason, unless to dub thee with the name of traitor. If that same demon that hath gulled thee thus should with his lion gate walk the whole world, he might return to vasty Tartar back and tell the legions, I can never win a soul so easy as that Englishman's. Oh, how hast thou with jealousy infected the sweetness of affiance? Show men dutiful? Why so didst thou, come they of noble family? Why so didst thou, seem they religious? Why so didst thou, or are they spare in diet, free from gross passion, or of mirth or anger? constant in spirit, not swerving with the blood, garnished and decked in modest compliment, not working with the eye without the ear, and but in perjured judgment trusting neither? Such and so finely bolted didst thou seem, and thus thy fall hath left a kind of blot to mark the full-fraught man and best endued with some suspicion. I will weep for thee for this revolt of thine, methinks. Is like another fall of man. It would not be easy to find a more illuminating instance of the use which drama can make of history. Shakespeare does not waste a word or a thought which appears in Hollinshead, but as his sweeping poetry carries forward the torrent of his loathing for black ingratitude and treachery, he kindles the emotions of all who read or see. Out of the chronicler's plain, accurate statement, he forges the red-hot scorn which burns up the creature who dares not face his foe, but does his cruel work secretly and unawares. It is impossible here to give any adequate conception of the magnificence and variety of the Elizabethan drama, as it is generally called, though so much of it actually belongs to James's reign. One development of it, however, should not be entirely left out. It was Henry VIII who introduced the mask into England from Italy. It was, at first, just a dumb show by players whose faces were concealed, hence the name. Later on, dialogue was introduced. The English mask's most flourishing time was James I's reign. His consort, Anne of Denmark, was particularly fond of them. Ben Jonson wrote a great number of which, the hue and cry after Cupid, was performed at court, with special pomp and magnificence. In The Mask of Blackness, the queen and eleven of her ladies appeared as negresses. No expense was spared in producing these masks. The costly machinery and staging were superintended by the famous architect Inigo Jones. Alfonso Ferrabosco, the son of a former court musician pensioned by Queen Elizabeth, who afterwards became musical tutor to James's son Henry, composed a great deal of the music. John Dowland, who had a heavenly touch upon the lute, directed the songs, though, in spite of his skill, he failed to obtain that substantial court favour which he sought industriously. Thomas Giles and Jerome Hearn arranged the dances, 
With all this varied talent showered upon them, the court masks were splendid functions. Though Prince Charles played the leading part in Johnson's The Vision of Delight, he took very little pleasure in this form of play, and in his court they were less popular than in his father's. In 1625, the year of King James's death, Johnson himself was paralysed. However, he recovered partially, and in 1629, Charles, who had pensioned him, further commissioned him to write a new mask, Love's Triumph, which was performed on Twelfth Night, 1630. His last, Chloridia, was played at court on Shrove Tuesday of 1630. Johnson, who by this time had lost his wife and children, and was himself in a condition of sadly broken health, wrote but two more plays, declaring that his brain was not palsied, he was only sick and sad. He died in 1637, and during the next few years, the mask went out of fashion. The Puritans, as everyone knows, objected to stage plays. After the restoration of Charles II, English drama borrowed considerably from France. Dryden wrote some romantic plays, for he was not only a great satirist. He wrote one fine tragedy, All for Love, and a comedy, The Spanish Friar. Comedy in these days, when men rejoiced in escaping from the grey decorum and dullness of the Puritans, grew popular. A gay comedy of manners, depicting everyday fashionable life, copying its manners and hitting off its follies. Wycherley, Congreve and Vanbrugh wrote the light-hearted, witty but immoral plays which delighted the men and women of the Restoration. Then the long, rather tedious reign of George III was charmed by the comedies of Oliver Goldsmith and Richard Brinsley Sheridan. These men had genius, penetrating insight into human character, lively and delightful wit. They did not spoil plays with the coarseness with which the Restoration playwrights had defaced their work, and so, though in a different manner, the comedies of that Georgian era remain a thing apart, as the Elizabethan drama stands alone. Of course, the age was different from ours. For example, every succeeding generation has its own outlook, its own peculiar savour. But too many of us too often forget that there is a permanent foundation beneath the passing fashions of life, and that, in its deepest qualities, both tragic and comic, human nature changes little, and that very slowly. Consequently, Goldsmith's and Sheridan's comedies are as entrancing and convincing to us as to the men and women of the 18th century. We still delight in the good-natured man. She Stoops to Conquer is as fresh as when it was written, and Tony Lumpkin never passes from the land of true comedy and laughter. Sheridan's Rivals and The School for Scandal bear revival again and again. Mrs. Malaprop is a friend against whom death itself is powerless. In the literature of the 19th century, with its wealth and astonishing variety, the drama has been the very weakest point, perhaps partly on account of the rise of the novel. Shelley, in the early part of the century, wrote lyrical dramas like Hellas and Prometheus Unbound, but they were not meant for the actual stage. He produced one great tragedy, the Sensi, which has remained unacted until quite recently. The plays of Tennyson were staged, but as they really never lived, they could scarcely be said to have died. Still, they are printed among his collected works, and wisely, for they will always be searched from time to time by a few for the sake of those lyrical passages, 
which he could never wholly exclude from anything he wrote. His genius was essentially lyrical, not dramatic. Though Robert Browning could write fine lyrics, yet his attitude to human life was essentially dramatic. Oddly enough, his genius only once came to fruition, and that in a single scene of a play, the magnificent scene between Charles and the man he has betrayed, in Stratford, the pathos of which is comparable to the famous deposition scene in Richard II. It would be hard to find human words more moving than Stratford's, betrayed, surrendered to his enemies by the king he had served, at the moment when the king, stung with remorseful shame, makes an ineffectual gesture to save him. Strafford just puts it aside. Balfour, say nothing to the world of this. I charge you as a dying man. Forget, you gazed upon this agony of one, of one, or if. Why, you may say, Balfour, the king was sorry. Tis no shame in him. Yes, you may say he even wept, Balfour and that I walked the lighter to the block because of it. I shall walk lightly, sir. Earth fades, heaven breaks on me. I shall stand next before God's throne. The moment's close at hand, when man the first, last time, has leave to lay his whole heart bare before its maker, leave to clear up the long error of a life and choose one happiness for evermore. With all mortality about me, Charles, the sudden wreck, the dregs of violent death, what if, despite the opening angel's song, there penetrate one prayer for you? Be saved through me. Bear witness. No one could prevent my death. Lead on, ere he awake. Best, now. All must be ready. Did you say, Balfour? The crowd began to murmur. They'll be kept too late for sermon at St. Antholin's. Now, betrayed softly. Children are at play in the next room. Proceed. I follow. When Macready presented Strafford in London, it ran but a few days. Browning seems to have expended his dramatic power best in that great poem in twelve books, as tragic as anything to be found in the world's literature, The Ring and the Book. No staging could increase the awfulness of that picture of Guido, the treacherous murderer, coming at last, however men may or may not punish him, to his own proper state and place. Let us go away, leave Guido all alone, back on the world again that knows him now. I think he will be found, indulged so far, not to die so much as slide out of life, pushed by the general horror and common hate, low, lower, left or the very ledge of things. I seem to see him catch convulsively, one by one at all honest forms of life, at reason, order, decency and use to cramp him and get foothold by at least, and still they disengage them from his clutch. And thus I see him slowly and surely edged off all the tableland whence life upsprings, aspiring to be immortality, as the snake hatched on hilltop by mischance. Despite his wriggling, slip-slide, slidders down hillside, lies low and prostrate on the smooth level of the outer place, lapsed in the veil. So I lose Guido in the loneliness, silence and dusk, till at the doleful end, at the horizontal line, creations verge from what just is to absolute nothingness. Whom is it, straining onward still, he meets? Judas, made monstrous by much solitude. The two are at one now. Kiss him the kiss, 
Iscariot. There, let them grapple, denizens of the dark, foes or friends, but indissolubly bound, in their one spot out of the ken of God or care of man for ever and evermore. Thus Browning in the 19th century treated the sin of treachery as Shakespeare did in the 16th or the great Florentine Dante in the 13th. Again, he can squeeze tragedy into a line like the last line in Guido's own speech, into five verses like the incident of the French camp, into some 60 lines like Porphyria's lover, or he will show the poignant drama of a soul torn bare of its covering by remorse as in Martin Ralph. Yet, apparently, his plays proper cannot be so staged as to hold an audience. The 19th century had one success in drama, however, in the unique light opera of Gilbert and Sullivan. Their work, The Mikado, Pinafore, etc., is not usually regarded as a part of English literature. Yet the musical genius of Sullivan, wedded to the apt speech and barbed wit of Gilbert, furnished operas which were and are loved by all and sundry, by simple and learned, and which repetition does not stale. These are no mean tests of literary worth. They are the work of fancy, of sense, of understanding of human nature, and of exquisite wit, which things are factors in literature. So if they are not worthy of the name, what shall they be called? A multitude of plays have been written and staged, of which a few comedies of manners deserve the name of literature. Some will probably live. The fate of Elroy Flecker's Hassan, published at last in November 1922, awaits decision. Some of us fancy it as a work of genius. It has a terrible sombre awe, which recalls the thundery terror of Webster in Elizabethan days, but this oriental play is shot through with a keen white wit, playing and dancing over the darkness like lightning out of some piled-up storm cloud. It is full, too, of delicate poetry, and it may yet prove to be the one great tragedy, apart from Shelley's Sensi, which England has produced since her finest dramatic days in the reigns of Elizabeth and James. End of chapter 8